Since becoming a dad, I have found myself doing things once again that I, that I used to do that I had stopped doing for a long time. There have been a number of things that I've, I've reverted back to doing since having children. I'll give you an example. Uh, going to the park and swinging on the swings. I used to do that as a kid. At, at recess and when going to the, the park with my, my parents uh, after school and, and on the weekends, but I stopped doing that for a long time. But since having children, you know, I'm going back to the park, swinging on the swings, sliding down the slide. Uh, several years ago, our girls got a trampoline for Christmas, and while I hadn't got out on it lately when they first got it, I got out there and I jumped with them. I hadn't done that in a long time, jumped on a trampoline. There are movies and shows that I am watching again that I used to watch as a child that uh, I haven't seen in a long time, but since having kids, I'm watching those shows again. So there have been certain things that I have, have reverted back to doing since having children that are good things, things that I enjoyed as a child and now I'm enjoying them with my children. There, there are certain things that we revert back to at times that are good things, right? Let's say at one time you, you ate healthy and you exercised and you stopped for a period of time, but you started again. That's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to revert back to. But there are other things that people revert back to that are not so good. Let's say if you have an alcoholic who has been sober for many years, and then he picks up the bottle again, or a drug addict who, who has been clean for years and starts using again. That's, that's not good. Well, we have learned in the book of Hebrews that many in this Jewish Christian audience have reverted back to something that is not good. Now, at one time, for the, for the Jewish people, it was good, okay? But reverting back to it is not. While they had responded in the right way to the gospel message, they had forsaken their sin, given their life to Jesus. Many of them had started to drift spiritually. At this time and this day, when this book was written, there were many competing belief systems, many, many doctrines that some uh, looked to, that looked like and sounded similar to Christianity, but were being pitched as being better. One held to the old practices and rituals of Judaism, and this, this competing belief system was influencing many in this day to question whether or not they were missing something when it came to Christ and the Christian faith. There were many in the church who were considering reverting back to their old practices and were even mixing some of them with the new and they were holding these beliefs and practices on par with and even above the Christian faith. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to address this issue and he is calling for them to not drift but draw near to Christ. Do not drift from Christ, draw near to him. Do not look away from Jesus do not drift from him, do not look beyond him, but rather consider him. Look to him, trust in him, follow hard after him. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 12. 
We're going to be finishing Hebrews 12 today. Then we'll have one chapter remaining. Then we'll be through with Hebrews, Lord willing, by the end of this month, by the end of May. Okay? We started this passage last week looking at verses 18 through 24. We're going to briefly review those verses and then finish this passage out today. We said last week to really understand this passage of Scripture in verses 18 through 29, it's important to understand how it is structured. And when you study the structure of this passage of Scripture, you see that the author of Hebrews structures this passage the way he structures the entire book of Hebrews, okay? So if you understand the structure of the book of Hebrews, you'll understand the structure of this passage of Scripture. And if you understand the structure of the passage of Scripture and the structure of the book of Hebrews, you're going to understand the main point of the passage of Scripture and the main point of the entire book. Okay, with me? Very important passage. <clears throat> what the writer of Hebrews has done in this book is he has made a strong case for the fact that Jesus is supreme. He is, he is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Especially when it comes to being our priest and accomplishing salvation for us and bringing us back into a right relationship with God. He is a better priest, a better Savior who established a better covenant. So the writer of Hebrews writes to stress this important point and he also, through warning passages and passages giving great assurance to his readers. He, he writes to encourage them, he writes in this way, to encourage them to not drift from the faith, but draw near to Christ, to continue in faithfulness. In this passage, we see the writer of Hebrews do what he's done throughout the entire book in this passage here in Hebrews 12. He makes a strong case for Christ being supreme. He gives assurance and he issues warnings to his audience as motivation for them to draw near to Christ in faith and follow hard after him. That's what he's doing throughout the book and what he's doing in this passage. Last week, we looked at the case that was made for Christ being supreme. Let's look at that again briefly just to review. In verses 18 through 24, the writer is returning to his conversation from earlier in the book about how Christ is a true and better priest who through his accomplished work at Calvary has established a true and better work than the priest and kings of old and has established a true and better covenant than the covenant God made with Moses. In the first seven verses in this passage, he shows how the new covenant of Jesus is better than the old covenant of Moses in a series of contrasts. Let's look at those. First, he, he shows us this. The covenant of Moses was earthly and temporal. The covenant of Jesus is heavenly and eternal. In Moses' day, when God was establishing his covenant with his people, we learn that God's people were physically there. They were gathered at Sinai. They could later see the tabernacle and the temple and the animals being slain, the bloody scene at that place of worship. Day after day, it was a reminder 
to them here on earth of their sin and their need for salvation. It took place on planet earth. It was visible for God's people to see. The covenant, the new covenant of Jesus, it's, it's heavenly, it's unseen, and it's eternal. No one on earth has seen the heavenly Zion talked about in this passage. In the heavens, they could just see the earthly Sinai. They could not see the work of their great king priest, Jesus, and the work he did in the heavenlies when he presents himself before the Father as the worthy lamb who was slain so that we who trust in him can be made right with God. We cannot see that, but the, the author of Hebrews lets his audience know it's a better work. The, the old covenant is no longer in place. We talked about that. No one is to go and offer a blood sacrifice in the temple for the sins of God's people any longer. That work has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. The old has been replaced with the new, and that's a good thing. They're not competing covenants like we talked about last week. They go hand in hand. The old was never meant to be permanent. It was always meant to be replaced. It was put in place to point a need for the new, a need for the new to come. And when the new arrives, it immediately replaces the old. No more need for the old. The earthly old covenant was never meant to last. It was meant to be replaced. It was meant to show a need for the new. And this day was the best thing going, but it's a new day, right? Because Christ has come and he has accomplished our salvation. He laid down his life as a perfect substitute and sacrifice for us at one time for all time. It's a done deal. Notice second contrast. There was gloom associated with the old covenant of Moses and there is joy associated with the new covenant of Jesus. Before Christ, God's people were told by God to keep their distance from him. They're told to gather but not get too close, right? And they also beg Moses, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us lest we die. They kept their distance, did not want God to speak to them. There is distance and division and separation between God and his people. There are all these barriers in place between man and God in their old existence with him. They were constantly reminded of this separation between them and him. It was a dark and gloomy and scary sort of existence compared to where we are today. In Moses' day, they did not draw near to God. They were told they could not, and they did not want God talking directly to them, scared them half to death. Even Moses was fearful. Hebrews 12, 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses had a relationship with God like no one else in the, in the Old Testament. There was no one closer, right? He had a very unique and close relationship with the one true and living God, but there was still separation. Moses, though he was an appointed mediator between God and man, he was a flawed go-between. He was in need of Christ's righteous life, which is why he could not enter into God's presence with boldness, but instead with fear and trembling. Now, there is to be some reverent fear, right, when we approach God, but we can do so now in boldness. Moses could not. Why? 
could Moses not because there was still separation at this time their sin had not yet been dealt with they did not yet have a perfect mediator who was worthy to stand before God on their behalf the perfect substitute had not yet been offered the perfect sacrifice had not yet been made Christ had not yet come in the days of Moses it was an old the 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 old covenant it was a dark and gloomy sort of existence and it was meant to be this way that's the point it was meant to show separation between God and man it was meant to highlight that point so that man could see the need for one to come to open the way back up for sinful man to be made right with holy God it, it showed a need for Christ and Christ came and he accomplished that work for us because of his work at Calvary we're able to enter into and live in right relationship with God we can commune with God today because of Christ because of him we have constant access to the Father we have God's presence in us God's spirit in us amen and there is coming a day when God's glory will be concealed no longer we will live in God's presence with this people with the angels we're told in this passage in festal gathering forever that day is coming for us and the writer of Hebrews is saying all of that to make the point if this believers is your current position in Jesus if this is your glorious future in him why on earth would you want to revert back to that old temporary system where God was at a distance and back to a time when the idea of entering into his presence and communing with him and hearing from him was a terrifying concept it's a good point isn't it why would you want to leave a covenant marked with joy for a covenant marked with gloom can't argue with that can you Here's another comparison that the author makes. In the Old Covenant of Moses, it was impossible to draw near to and be at peace with God. In the New Covenant of Jesus, peace and restoration are possible through His blood. The Old Covenant was marked by commands that were impossible to keep. We were reminded last week that one of the functions of the law was to serve as a mirror and not a ladder many believe the law of God functions as a ladder showing sinners how far they need to go what they need to do how high they need to climb to be made right with God that is not the purpose of the law the law is meant to function as a mirror showing us who we truly are how far we fall short and to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will be humbled and look outside of ourselves toward the Savior for rescue that's the purpose of the law so the Old Covenant is marked with impossibility it was meant to show that drawing near to God being at peace with him is not possible on our own by our own power that's why Christ had to come God the Son stepped out of eternity and into history became one of us kept the law for us obeyed God perfectly in our place and laid his life down for us so that we through his work on our behalf as our great high priest so that we through trusting in him his life death and resurrection could be forgiven of sin and restored to God and have abundant and eternal life in him okay so that's last week 
That's the recap of last week. The writer of Hebrews begins this passage like he begins the book, establishing the fact that Jesus is better. He is our supreme priest, a better Savior who establishes a better covenant. Notice he continues in this passage by also giving a word of warning to his audience, just like he does throughout the entire book. Notice the word of warning he gives to strike fear into the listener and encourage faithfulness. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now let me pause there for a minute and ask you this question. This is extra. I'm not going to charge you, okay? Who is the him who is speaking mentioned here? Who's the writer talking about? Talking about God, right? And notice he is speaking in the present tense. The writer is claiming to be speaking the word of God here. Do you see that? The Bible is God-breathed, amen? We believe that here strongly. Men spoke in this book from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Hebrews is in this number. It is a divinely inspired book. We believe that. This is one of the books that God authored through his human author. That's that's extra, but that's important, okay? And that's what he's saying here. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not refuse the word God is speaking through the author of Hebrews. Perk up, listen. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, let me explain that in case any of you got lost a little bit in that, in that passage. The author of Hebrews, in addition to referring to the, the events during the time of Moses, is also taking his readers back, not as far back to the time of Moses, but to the time of the minor prophets. He's taking them back to the words of the minor prophet Haggai. In verses 26 and 27, he references Haggai chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish Christian audience, well-versed in the Old Testament. That's why he's, he's continuing to go back to the Old Testament and back to the Old Testament. He's all over the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. He does that quite a bit. Haggai is a minor prophet book written by the author, that it's named for Haggai, during the time after Judah had fallen to Babylon, after they had been in captivity for 70 years, after that time the power shifts from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire, and by God's providence, the Persian king allows for the Jews to return home. To their homeland so many of them return home and not only does this king allow for them to return home but he allows for them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed and during the time of the book of Haggai the temple uh, that the Babylonians destroyed is being rebuilt but get this it's not as it once was in the days of Solomon 
right? And so God, through his prophet Haggai, is writing to address this people and he's promising them that he is going to restore the temple to its former glory. And even greater, right? Because we know Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that who is going to appear 500 years later in the temple and he refers to himself as the temple, doesn't he? The dwelling place of God. God, man, the God man who became one of us to live for us, right? God with us. So the writer, Haggai, he's, he's promising a future restoration of this dwelling place. And he also promises, get this, a future judgment to come as well. And this is a teaching that we see throughout Scripture. God clearly teaches throughout Scripture there is a day coming, a future day of salvation, a future day of redemption, a future day of restoration, but there is also a day coming that is a day of judgment. There is a future judgment coming as well. We see both of these here in Haggai chapter 2. God says through his prophet Haggai, there is coming a day when he is going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, God is, through his prophet here, he's using figurative language to talk about the fact that he's going to bring judgment. And the only thing that is going to remain, get this, is that which is associated with God's kingdom. And that which is removed is whatever is not associated with this kingdom. The writer of Hebrews is drawing his reader's attention back to Haggai who looked forward into the future to that future day of judgment that God is going to bring. And he is saying the day of judgment is coming. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and only those associated with him through his son, only God's kingdom people will remain. So make sure that you're a part of his kingdom people, right? He is, he is showing the surety and the severity of God's judgment that is coming. There's something else I want you to see here as well. Notice this removal of things that are shaken, things that have been made. It reminds us that the idols of this world that we so cherish spend all of our time dreaming about and thinking about and planning for and chasing after will one day be done away with completely. Crushed, broken up, cast down, removed forever. Very, very important. God will one day remove. He will destroy those things that are made and all that will remain is that which belongs to the Lord. Al Moeller in his commentary on Hebrews says this. He says, in light of this truth, get this, we should not put our hope in this present world for nothing in it will continue. Instead, he says, we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Are you thankful that you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken? You're a kingdom people who cannot be shaken. Have you received a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Have you bowed your knee to the king of the kingdom? Maybe that's the question for you this morning. Have you made Christ your Lord? Is he the one you're living for and following hard after and trusting in alone for salvation? The writer of Hebrews is saying, God is speaking today just like he spoke in the days of Moses. 
to Moses and his people at Sinai and through his prophet Haggai. He is speaking through the author of Hebrews. Make sure you're listening. Make sure you respond to these words. Don't be like those in Moses' day who refused to heed the commands of God and turned away from him. He's saying don't be like them. Why? Because there are serious consequences for those who fail to follow hard after the Lord Jesus Christ, who reject him. Remember all but Joshua and Caleb died in the wilderness in Moses' day before entering the land of promise. We're told by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, they did not enter God's rest. And here in chapter 12, verse 25, we're told, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The children of Israel rejected God's word when he spoke it to Moses on Sinai. Remember, his words shook the earth, didn't they? They shook that mountain when he gave his commands to his servant. They rejected his words through his servant Moses. They died in the wilderness. They did not enter his rest, his land of promise. The writer of Hebrews is saying, if that's true of them who rejected God's words on the earth through his servant Moses, how much more so is that going to be true of anyone who rejects God's words from Zion, from heaven, down through his son Jesus Christ he is issuing a huge warning here the writer of Hebrews is giving his readers this warning to show these believers this is not to be true of you God's judgment is coming for those who reject his son you respond by not doing so do not reject him do not drift from him draw near to him consider him trust in him cling to him follow hard after him those who do will be saved from the judgment coming those who are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will persevere and be saved. So, he's giving a word of warning to strike fear into his listeners and encourage faithfulness. Notice also he gives a word of assurance to stir the hearts of the hearer and encourage faithfulness. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So notice here, the, the writer of Hebrews, he does this throughout the book. After giving a great word of warning on the heels of that warning, he gives a great word of assurance as well, right? We've got both. In the previous passage, he warns his readers saying, see to it, you do not refuse him who is speaking, him who warns from heaven. He warns of a great judgment that's coming for his people. And then the very next verse, he says, let us believers be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says, let us believers be thankful that we are a part of God's kingdom people who will not be shaken. We are God's people. We, through Christ, through faith alone and him alone, are safe from judgment. Because of that, he says, let us respond by offering God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, I need to pause here for a minute and really point something out to you. This 
is how true Christ followers respond in light of salvation. This is how genuine believers who have been transformed from the inside out, who have stepped out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, respond. They respond with acceptable worship and with reverence and with awe. There are some professing Christians that I have met today who reason in this way. They say, you know what? I, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I walked down the aisle, passed through the waters of baptism. I'm good no matter what. Therefore, I can just kick back, enjoy life, live how I want to live, knowing that I'm good no matter what. They, all that is needed to be saved is just to believe facts to be true about Jesus and affirm those facts by praying a magical prayer, walking a magical aisle, and passing through the waters of baptism, and they have no more, follow me here, they have no more of a heart for God and a desire to worship Him and can commune with Him and be conformed to the image of His Son than an atheist on the street. Listen, folks. One who has been transformed from the inside out. One who realizes they've been saved from sin and death and condemnation and the wrath of God. One who has been transformed and made right with God. Who moved from being an enemy to a child of his. That person doesn't respond to God in that way. How does a child of God, one who has received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, one who is saved from condemnation, saved for God to live for him with his people, forever respond. Again, verse 28, they're grateful, they're thankful, they're worshipful, they respond with acceptable worship and reverence and awe. With their gaze lifted upward toward their God in heaven, amazed at his wonderful, magnificent work of salvation. They're captivated by his glorious grace. They are humbled by his magnificent mercy. Is this your response to God in light of your salvation? Not, it should be. It's what the author of Hebrews is indicating here. So the author of Hebrews offers a word of assurance to his audience in hopes that their hearts would be stirred, that they would faithfully respond in acceptable worship. Then notice he gives one last word of warning to end. He says, do this, worship in this way, for our God is a consuming fire. Now remember, to understand this, Keep Moses at Sinai in mind. That's the context here. Moses describes God in Exodus 24 in Deuteronomy 4 as a devouring fire, a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews is drawing upon that imagery, reminding his readers once again, like he did in verse 25, that God's judgment is coming. We often hear songs about God's fire falling as being a good thing. We don't want that. You don't want that. God's fire to fall on, on us. We want to be saved from it. Again, Al Mohler said it in this way in his commentary on Hebrews. He said, God described as a consuming fire reminds us of the severe and eternal consequences of failing to turn to him in faith and repentance. Folks, like it or not, God is coming in judgment. 
Not my words, God's words. Like I've told you before, I, I don't write the messages, I just deliver the mail, right? His judgment is coming. We, we've rejected him, we've, we've set ourselves against him, we've ruined and wrecked our condition, his world by our sin. He's coming to judge and condemn those set against him, those who have rejected his son for salvation. Only those found in Christ, only God's kingdom people will be saved in that day from a righteous and wrathful God. Are you trusting God's son alone for your salvation? Have you been rescued from sin through faith alone in Christ alone? I pray you would be today, if not, you have not I pray this morning you would forsake your sin bow the knee to King Jesus today you can be forgiven and restored to God through Christ safe and secure in him if you would forsake your sin turn from it and bow your knee to King Jesus let's pray together